Thank you all very much. I appreciate uh, that clap. And uh, I'm obviously, every time I get to come, I'm just honored uh, to be here. I don't take this lightly. Uh, and I just certainly uh, don't want to come and, uh, and waste your time or anything. So when Mark asks me to fill in, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed and uh, so pleased to be able to do it. And uh, as you've, um, you've been looking up here on the screen, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, I think he might have the, the wrong topic. This is uh, church history. Uh, what in the world is he going to talk about? Well, let me, let me kind of explain a little bit to you here. And, and by the way, there's all kinds of lists about the seven wonders of this. And, the, you know, there's the seven ancient wonders, you know, like the Great Pyramid and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and so forth and all. And then there's, uh, there's other lists of different things that there is seven uh, wonders of something. And in this particular one, I was just looking at some of the seven modern wonders of the world. And I'll explain why this was on my mind, okay, in just one second, so just kind of bear with me. But there they are, just real quickly, the Empire State Building, and uh, Christy and I, one time we went to New York and got a chance to, to go to the top of that, and that was pretty interesting. The Itaibu uh, Dam, I have no, where, no idea where that is. Has anyone ever been there, ever seen that? Is it impressive? Because it made the list, and so, uh, it's, yeah, okay. Uh, we got the CN Tower, uh, Panama Canal. Never been to either one of these places either. I'm hoping one day to be able to go to the Panama Canal. Uh, the channel that goes under the pond uh, of uh, the English Channel there. Uh, that's one of the wonders. The Golden Gate Bridge. We've got one here in the States along with the Empire State Building. And then the North Sea Protection Works. Uh, you know, I'm, that's North Sea. Pretty bad weather up there. So I guess obviously that's one of the seven uh, wonders for, mod- uh, for modern times, and apparently they got a bunch of engineers together, and uh, they decided, hey, these are the modern wonders of the world. And so anyways, when I was looking at all these different kind of lists, including this one right here, I just really felt like there was one modern wonder that they've left off this list, and I think uh, uh, it's really important. And that one would be the eighth <laughs> modern wonder of the world. A brilliant mind with a baby face. Now you say, why were you thinking this? Because I don't know how in the world this man does everything that he does and still gets a lesson together every Sunday, getting up early in the morning, putting his PowerPoint together, handing out an eight-page document. Do you all know how hard I tried to get eight pages of something to say for you all this week, just so that I wouldn't let the standard down, you know? But I was just thinking, this has got to be the eighth modern wonder of the world. Because I tell you what, this has been uh, an incredible week. A blessing, obviously, like I said, but what helped me to even appreciate it more, if I was having to prepare cases and argue cases and get before uh, juries and high-powered people. Uh, the intense pressure of that. Uh, I'm still working on a, uh, a seminar. just took a, s- a seminar just before the end of the year up in uh, Midwestern at Midwestern Seminary. And uh, the two final papers of that particular seminar are due tomorrow. And so I've been scrambling around. I had to do one that was on, I had to write a hypothetical dialogue between three members of the clergy, one a Roman Catholic, one Eastern Orthodox, and one Evangelical. So that was fun. That was, that was pretty fun. But I'm thinking of what I'm going to be doing for the uh, church history literacy class. The other paper that I've got to get in by tomorrow, too, is on postmodernism or the emergent church. And so there's been all these things, but you know, 
it'd be, it, it was amazing how this week, how so many things were tying together as I was preparing uh, this uh, lesson for us today. So anyways, while I was in the middle of that, staying up some pretty late nights, I'm thinking, how does Mark do it? I don't know, but we sure appreciate him, don't we? Well, we're going to be looking at Philip Melanchthon uh, today. And uh, Mark is, he started, I know, on Luther, right, uh, last week. And then he's going to pick Luther up again in another couple weeks. So we'll cover Melanchthon today and we'll cover uh, Zwingli uh, next week. And so they're kind of sandwiched in there together. But, you know, uh, Philip Melanchthon, in fact, when you go out there and you look at the, uh, the information out there, you look at lots of different resources, you'll find that his name is spelled differently from time to time. Sometimes they don't put that second P on the end of Philip. Sometimes they don't put that H right in there before the, or in between the C and the T in Melanchthon. Uh, he's not a real well-known character. In fact, I appreciate Dale Hearn. Dale, where are you? My research assistant. Thank you, Dale, right here. Uh, he's the real deal, by the way, uh, but Dale. Uh, but he, was, he uh, sent me an email, hey, anything I can do to help you out, and I appreciate all the research that he did. But he kept calling him melancholy, you know, Philip Melancholy. And when you find out, you know, how little there is about him and that we really know, he maybe he got a little melancholy about that, little uh, 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 feeling like he was left out. But... He was basically the sidekick for Martin Luther. You know, we think about all the sidekicks. If you got Batman, you got what? You got the Lone Ranger, you got, you got George Bush, you got Carl Rove. I mean, you know, that's right, Carl Rove, right? But uh, anyways, so you got Martin Luther and you have Philip Melanchthon. Okay, so let's look a little bit there. Notice we said about Mark, a brilliant mind with a baby face. Well, here's a brilliant mind... You know, I put two pictures. I went all out looking for pictures of Philip Melanchthon. And I think the fact that we had two, one from this angle, one from that angle, there was just no angle that an that a artist could paint this man and not, him not be ugly. The poor thing, he just didn't have a whole lot going for him. In fact, his own friend, his best friend, 15 years his senior, Martin Luther, called him, he was a shrimp of a man. How do you like that? How would you like your best friend to be able to talk to you about that? But let me tell you, what he lacked in looks, he surely uh, made up for in intelligence. In fact, he was the theologian of the two. He was the one that did a lot of the writing. He was the one that uh, was with uh, um, Luther and the, um, the different gatherings that they had when they were questioning him called diets. He was with them uh, on that. He wrote the uh, document. In fact, he wrote the document. We'll see it in just a little bit. The uh, Osberg uh, Confession, he wrote that which the Lutherans use even today as a basis of their denomination. So uh, he was a very, very important individual. Just so we could kind of get an idea of what's all going here, I'm sure Mark has shown you maps and he's already shown you probably maps a whole lot better than this. But everything that was happening here, let me see if I can get this, is just right here in this region. You know, it's not even including England up here uh, and, and, and Scotland and all this area. That's uh, where you had some other reformers a little bit later on. But all of this is happening in this area. And, of course, I probably should have gotten the state of Texas to put up beside there just so you can get a better idea. Because, you know, people that come over from overseas, they just can't get over the fact that you could drive two days and still be in the same state here in Texas. Uh, when we went up north and um, to uh, New Jersey one time, uh, uh, we were just amazed at how many different states you could go to in, in one day because the states are smaller up there. But this is just a, a very uh, small region. Okay, there we go. It's not working. 
forgot my finger. Oh, there we go. So, <laughs> can you see it? Did it disappear? Yeah, in it. Okay. Right here, the Roman Catholic Church, all this area that's around him, Eastern Orthodox Church, right over here. The Lutherans, when they really started, the, the followers of, of Luther in this little region right in here. Calvin in his area, right down here in Switzerland. He was born in France, but he, he eventually moved to Switzerland. He and Zwingli were down in this area right here, and so the dark blue represent uh, uh, his influence. And then the other colors, the yellow right here, the Anglican church up in these areas. But what's interesting about this is what's, what was significant, what happened with these reformers, is you, what they were saying and what they were standing for. And by the way, it's important to realize that Luther never wanted to go start another church. And the Reformers were not trying to start another denomination. They just simply identified areas within the Catholic Church that they believed needed Reformation. And that's a good thing. I mean, there's things in the church today across denominational lines that need Reformation. And so God, I believe, I believe raises up people at different times in history, that will hold a mirror up to uh, Christianity and say, okay, now take a good hard look. Like what it says in James. What good does it do for a man to look in a mirror if he then just walks away and doesn't do anything about it? So he raises up individuals to say, hey, look, what do you see? And that's what he did with these reformers. But what's interesting is what they were saying. And in this day and time, you remember that they would burn you at the stake. I mean, they didn't mess around with what they perceived as heretics. If you were labeled a heretic or if you were labeled too much of a troublemaker to the established religion, they just got rid of you. Now, the one thing, though, with Luther is that he had such a connection with the people that he got began to get such a huge following that they realized, hey, you know what, we better handle this different ways. But they still called him to question him. But look what you're surrounded by. And, and, and I'm not, please understand, I'm not calling the Catholic Church enemies here. Okay, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I want you to see, though, that in what they were bringing up and in that day and time when you could lose your life over something, they were so convinced that they were right and they were willing to, to stake their life on it. You're pretty surrounded by hostile territory, aren't you? It's a very, very small area. And Philip Melanchthon was right in the middle of this. Now, just to kind of get an idea of the, of the, uh, the, the years that we're talking about, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, Philip Melanchthon, and John Calvin were all right there clustered together. Isn't that amazing that God raised up four individuals? Martin Luther obviously was going to be the passionate one. He was going to connect with the people. He was the preacher. He was the, he was the prime mover, if you will, uh, of, the, of the Reformation. John Calvin obviously was just a brilliant individual. and He was a theologian. And, and, and down there in Switzerland, along with Ulrich Zwingli. But Philip Melanchthon was also the scholar that was behind the scenes, right, with, with Luther. But four major personalities, major personalities right there together. And by the way, going back right here, Philip Melanchthon, born, uh, born 1497. Is that pretty close to some other significant event? Anyone know? About five years earlier? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? in 1492. And so that's about the time that he lived so we can kind of get an idea about it. So once again, we have down there in France, uh, that's where Calvin was born. Then we have uh, Ulrich Zwingli right here in Zurich. Uh, then we have uh, uh, Luther and Melanchthon in the southern part of, of uh, Germany there. 
Here's the home where he was born, in Breton. Uh, he was born Philip Schwarzerd. That was his uh, given name. That was his father's name. His father was an armorer in that little town. He later changed his name Schwarzerd, which is German for Black Earth. That's a really neat name. Uh, to Melanchthon, which is the Greek equivalent. So from then on, he was known as Melanchthon. In fact, it was his uncle that noticed his giftedness in Greek that it was fairly common for someone that, uh, to use then a Greek name or Greek word to replace their last name. And so in this particular case, since it was Black Earth in German, Schwarzschild, well, then the Greek equivalent would be Melanchthon. And so that's what his name uh, was from then on. He had godly parents who emphasized uh, the importance of piety and prayer. So he had a very good uh, upcoming. You know, Luther came from humble beginnings, but Melanchthon was in a very good family and, and came from, a, 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 you know, not, certainly not a poor uh, family. Uh, when his father died... When Philip was only 11 years old, he went to go live with his grandfather. And uh, his grandfather gave him two very, well, at least one, influential teachers in uh, Philip's life. The first one was John Hengaris, and uh, he was very hard on uh, Philip. And uh, both in the classroom and outside the classroom. Because, you know, when, when, when some parents would bring a tutor for the children at that time... Uh, they did more than just simply teach them in a classroom. They really became involved in their lives. Okay, they were almost, in a sense, almost like guardians, second guardians, you know, to their parents. So he was really involved in Philip and his brother's life, um, uh, but he was really hard on him. But Philip ve- deeply appreciated him and loved him. And in fact, he even said that he loved him like a father. So he had a very good relationship with John Hengaris. When his grandfather died. Then Philip and his brother and also uh, uh, their, their uh, cousin went to go uh, live with a great aunt. And she was the sister of Johann Ruschlin. Now, Johann uh, was um, a scholar during the Renaissance and he, had a great, he was a humanist, basically. He had a love for uh, the philosophers, for art, for architecture, for ethics, and so forth. And he was more in love, even though he was a great help to Luther and Melanchthon a little bit later on uh, with his help, because he was a Hebrew scholar. And so he was a great help to them when they were translating some of the Old Testament. Um, but he was more in love with the Renaissance than he was the Reformation. A key figure in the Renaissance, very helpful in the Reformation. Look at this. Talk about the guy, how smart he was. He got his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Heidelberg by the time he was 13. Now, you'll look at different sources and you'll see some that said, well, he, he left when he was 12 years old. He was there for two years, got his degree within two years. Well, then that would make him almost 14. Then you have others that say, no, he got it by the time he was 13. You have some other sources that say he got it before he was 13. Well, all we know is he was young when he got his bachelor's degree. And, and he was brilliant and uh, really excelled in Greek and Latin. And then, of course, the influence of Ruchlan, he really had, uh, had a love for uh, the philosophers and, and all of the humanities as well. So then he gets his bachelor's and then he just kind of takes some time off and kind of loafs for a while and then goes and gets his master's from Tübingen by the time he was 17. And then, again, he's becoming more refined. He begins to tutor at Tübingen. So he gets his degree, but he's also tutoring and teaching and lecturing uh, in the humanities and in Greek and Latin. And so he stays there for a while, but then he gets really bored. I mean, there's nothing more for him to learn. He's learned it all. 
He's kind of experienced it all, and so he's ready for another challenge. So uh, what does he do? He finally receives a call from Wittenberg when he was 21, and he became a professor at Wittenberg. Now, when Melanchthon arrived on the scene at Wittenberg, in fact, just before his first official uh, uh, lecture before the faculty, nobody was impressed with him. I mean, obviously, like I said, one month to look at. He was, uh, he, he, uh, had a, he was a little man. And so when he first got up there, you know, the rest of the faculty were like, oh, come on. And he was young, 21. And so they're thinking, oh, my goodness. They were not impressed with him until he got up and began to speak. And then all of a sudden they just went silent. And, of course, Luther was overjoyed. And he saw the potential in this uh, young man. But he didn't make an initial, an initial great impression. But when he opened his mouth and he started to speak, then they got a glimpse of um, the brilliance of, of this man. Uh, he began lecturing on Homer, the biblical um, the books, as well as teaching Greek and, and Hebrew grammar. Uh, by the time he was 21, he'd already produced a Greek grammar and uh, was also working on the Hebrew grammar. That right there is where uh, he lived whenever he was at uh, Wittenberg. That's the home, even still standing today when he was a teacher at Wittenberg. He became such a popular lecturer and teacher at Wittenberg that then students from all over Europe uh, started coming there. See, Wittenberg was a fairly young school and had been, uh, been started by uh, the Lord that was in that area. So it was a fairly young school. He didn't have a big, uh, a very impressive reputation. But when Melanchthon came, of course, then you, you get Luther, and he starts to make waves and starts to get attention. But it was really when Melanchthon came that the word began to spread, and you had students coming from all over Europe that were coming to, uh, to, this, uh, to this university. Melanchthon married Katharina. I won't say her last name. It was good that she changed it to Melanchthon. <laughs> Uh, he married her in 1520. Now, this was pretty significant because you see, uh, you say with a German accent, doesn't matter. It's still, it's still bad. But uh, the thing about, uh, he, he was very reluctant to get married. Even though he got married pretty young, he was very reluctant to get married because he was afraid that it would take away from his studies. He was so committed to his studies and he was such an intellect that he was feeling, you know, if I get married and then if we have children, it will pull me away. And therefore, he, was, he was, just wasn't ready to sacrifice that. But when he met uh, Katharina and they fell in love and he trusted the Lord that this was uh, his will for his life, uh, then they got married. And you know what? It didn't slow him down at all. They had four children. Uh, but they said that he would be up at 2 o'clock in the morning. He'd go to sleep uh, early the night before. He'd be up at 2 o'clock with one hand rocking the cradle while with the other hand he'd be reading a book. And that was his habit. So he was an extremely disciplined man. When uh, These were the key events, obviously. He married Katharina in 1520. But look how closely all these major events were clustered in there together. And imagine the, everything that's happening in the world this time. You've got the, 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 the primary church, the religious institution that is getting angry and is starting to take, uh, take action to shut down these new revelations that are coming about. Especially that Martin Luther, when he read Romans, that he said that the just shall live by faith alone. And, and, and when the, the Pope, Pope Leo, had said, you know what, I need to finish uh, uh, the basilica, so, you know, we need to start, to, we can charge for some indulgences. And it just, it, it, Luther could not handle that, and he would not accept that. 
And even as a Catholic monk, and he stood against that. So he's causing a major, uh, major uproar here. 1521, Melanchthon began writing his Loci Commune, which is Latin for theological commonplaces. He had been studying the book of Romans, and so he took all of his sermons that he'd been looking at and studying the book of Romans and began to produce this. It was basically a systematic theology. And uh, it was at the time and, and uh, a very impressive document uh, for the folks at that time. 1522, uh, Luther produced his German New Testament. We know that uh, the, the thing about that New Testament is that the people could read it. It was in their language. It was German. And it could be produced fairly inexpensively. So it sold thousands and thousands of copies. Now, I want to stop here for just a second because that was so significant that the people now could have the Word of God in their own language. And they became, it was like water to parched ground. And then when they would read this, then they would pass it, they would tell their neighbors. And they became, it became evangelists, so to speak, with the very Word of God. One of the places that we, I'm trying to work on that we might be going for a mission trip is over in France, in Marseille. Is that how you say it? Marseille? Okay. Um, the, there's an, an agreement between the International Mission Board and Campus Crusade for Christ, where you go over there and it's right across. We cannot go in to northern Africa. It's closed uh, to, to evangelize. But they come to France and they come on the, the ferry and they bring their cars and so forth. The people are con- constantly coming to France. And so one of the opportunities is to go and to put these packets together with the Bible, with tracts in their language because they're Muslim. And uh, a copy of Josh McDowell's uh, book, More Than a Carpenter, in, in, uh, translated in their language. He put all these packets together. Years ago, when Christians first started trying to do that, when they would come off of the boat and they would learn that you were a Christian, they'd spit on you. They wouldn't have anything to do with you. But as time has gone on over the last several years, some of them took them. And those packets now have made it back into northern Africa and are going around where now they say that when they come off the boat, they're looking for those packets. They're wondering where they are. The power of God's Word and what it, how it will change lives. And that's what was happening here. Because now the people are reading the Word of God uh, for, in their own language. And, and Luther used Erasmus' Greek text to be able to, to tra- and then to take that, to translate it uh, in, uh, in, the, in German. And now the people are excited about what they're reading. And now they're hearing this, this Catholic monk talk about the just shall live by faith. It's not your works, but it's your faith. And the righteousness, not only, that, um, uh, that, that not only God's righteousness, but the righteousness, He has the power to make you righteous. And that was powerful for them at that time. Melanchthon was also by Luther's side at three very important gatherings. The uh, Leipzig Disputation in 1519, where basically Luther once again had to answer uh, the questions and the accusations against him. Uh, The Marburg uh, Colloquy, that was with Zwingli. That would come a little bit later. We'll look at that a little bit more uh, next week. But that was a case where uh, Luther and Zwingli, uh, both in the Reformation, uh, there was a Reformation going on in Zurich as well, uh, but they didn't see it eye to eye on all the points of theology. And one of the main ones was the Lord's Supper. 
and they just didn't see eye to eye on that. And so that was a case where the ruler in that area, not wanting the Protestant Reformation to be dead on arrival, said, you know what, if I can get these two powerful figures together and they can come to agreement on that, well, then, uh, 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 then maybe uh, this will even have a greater chance of succeeding and spreading. Uh, Melanchthon was right in the middle of it. In fact, he was the one that drew up the articles of faith or of, of doctrine that they all agreed on. And they ended up agreeing on 14 of 15, but that one, that last one, caused them to go their separate ways. Uh, still in love and charity, Christian charity towards one another, but they didn't agree, and so uh, uh, he couldn't get them together on that. And then the final one is the, uh, the Diet of Augsburg. 1530. But troubled times uh, came. You'll see there in your notes. I just took that right from your notes there. Whenever they had the... Uh, when uh, Charles V uh, got them together uh, for the... Well, I, I'm skipping ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, when it, whenever they had the, the Diet of Osborne, whenever um, he wrote up this document and the signers, all those that were saying they believed with these doctrines, they would, they'd signed on. And they realized that whenever they signed a document, now it's in print, it's in ink. That could be used against them, but they didn't back down. But that still infuriated the, uh, it infuriated the, the, the Catholic Church and the, and the rulers around that time because it was Charles V that got them together because he had not listened in the other gatherings. He didn't want to hear what they had to say. He didn't want to hear about what Luther's opinions were about that. But then finally, with the, the Diet of Augsburg, he said, okay, look, all right, I, I'm going to listen this time, and I want you to tell me what this guy believes. Luther didn't even get to, to be there for the whole time. It was Melanchthon that was his representative. And he basically wrote out this, the beliefs in a systematic way of Lutheran theology or the Protestant theology. And so then the king was able to look at this, and then that's the document that the other signed, and he didn't like it. And it, it just poured pour, uh, fuel on, on the fire. So um, great troubled times. And in fact, later on, obviously when Luther died, Melanchthon was the likely um, next leader, the one to take his place. But he just didn't have, he, he just didn't have the same temperament as, as Luther. Melanchthon was quiet, reserved, you know, uh, Luther was, was boisterous. He could be fiery. I mean, you know, obviously. Now, whenever he stood at the Diet of Worms, whenever they were saying, hey, look, did you say all these things? And all he said, you know, th- that was a very tough time because, I mean, he, you know, John Huss, just a, not long before that, had been killed, burned at the stake. And so, you know, he had to really think it through. And he did take some time to think about it. And he was sweating profusely. But then it was at that time when Luther said, no, I cannot deny it. And this is where I stand. I take my stand right before the entire Catholic Church, the Pope himself. I mean, Luther had incredible intestinal fortitude. Melanchthon was not that kind of a guy. So when he took over for Luther a little bit later on in life, he just wasn't the leader that Luther was. That was not his primary role. And so, and not only that, but because he still tried to work through the, the, es, the essentials of Catholicism and saying, you know what, okay, Maybe we can still find some common ground. Uh, maybe we can find some of those things that are not just really major points of doctrine where we cannot sign off on them, and we can still uh, accept those. Well, the hardcore followers of Luther saw that as a compromise. And they, saw, they thought he was weak. 
And so then, not only was he trying to build bridges and keep, or, and keep bridges open, if you will, and trying to, to have a, an ongoing relationship with the Catholic Church so that it just would not become their sworn enemy, which could possibly even stamp out uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation. But he also had the folks here who had been loyal to Luther on his case as well. And saying, you know, hey, you, you're, you're compromising. You know, you're giving in. You're not strong enough and all. And so he was getting it from both sides. And so he had a really uh, troubled, troubled time. Well, Philip Melanchthon died on April 19, 1560. And he was buried uh, in the Wittenberg Church, the, the castle church, right beside his best friend, Martin Luther. Look what he wrote when he the, the, when death was at his uh, at his doorstep. I mean, he was he had been sick for a while, but he worked right up to the very end, still teaching, still studying as long as he could. But then finally, when he uh, it was obvious that uh, he was about to die, he took a slip of paper and wrote out some words on it, just right before he died. On one side, he said, "You will be redeemed from sin." and set free from cares and from the fury of theologians. That's on one side. So imagine, it kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse of what he went through his whole life. He lived in the academic world, and, and that's a tough place to live. He was bringing out things and supporting a, a rebel in the eyes of the main uh, uh, religious institution. He was getting it from all sides, even from theologians. He was getting it from the main religious institution. He was getting it from then later on from even the followers of his best friend. And so when he's about to die, that was still in his heart. He said, you know what? I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be delivered from the fury of theologians. And then on the other side of the piece of paper, he wrote, You will come to light and you will look upon God and His Son. You will understand the wonderful mysteries which you could not comprehend in this life. Why we were so made and not otherwise. And in that union of the two natures in Christ consists. Right up before he takes his dying breath, this is what's on his mind. Can't you see right there the difference and how someone who knows Christ dies versus someone who doesn't know Christ dies? I've been in many uh, situations as a pastor to be there moments, uh, perhaps before they took their first breath. There's actually only been one person that I was holding her hand when she actually took her last breath, and I could see the little vein in her neck, just the, the pulse slow, and then eventually stop. And that's a, that's a, a very sobering experience. But I've been in some of those situations where they're absolutely petrified. They're scared to death. And they're trying and, 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 and praying that the doctor will find one more solution to their problem or one more um, way to possibly heal them or to get them better. But I've also been in the company of many who do know Christ. And when they lay their head back and they have their family around them, of course they would love to have had more years of life, but they sit there with... A, with rest and peace and be able to say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready. Melanchthon was ready. And to understand, too, the significance of this is that when he and Luther and the other reformers, when they were emphasizing salvation 
through faith alone. And the righteousness, not only God's righteousness, but the righteousness that He gives you. You better be absolutely confident that you're right. Because if you're not, that's blasphemy. That Jesus, that, 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 that Christ would give you, that you would somehow, He would impart to you His righteousness to be able to say that. Apart from works. That there will be nothing that you can do. There's no indulgences. Uh, no, there, there's, there's no place uh, to go where then if I don't get it right the first time, I can work my way into heaven. No, that's it. And they were absolutely convinced because of the work that God had done in their lives. And they stood and they looked at the enemy. They looked at those who literally wanted to take their lives. And they stood firm. Even this little shrimp of a man was a giant in faith. And was strong. And when he was ready to die, he said that um, he would look on the face of God. Now, what are our points for home? Because I didn't put it on your your sheet. That was one more thing. By the way, I know that there's some typos there. I know uh, Wittenberg, I put a U instead of an E. Um, Spelled both ways in some places. Especially in my mind. Also, I think there was another place on there. I think I got my copy where... Uh, let's see, where is it here? Uh, you, just so that you know. And I did edit the one I think that uh, Steve is going to put on the website. But like about the uh, one, two, three, the fourth paragraph down at the very end. It was during. Well, I was going to leave you in, suspi- uh, in suspense there, right? I have no idea what I was about to write on that. But uh, anyways, I caught that. I'm like, I caught that after it had already been all printed up. So, you know, there's probably a few more typos in there and all. But one of the things I left off was the points for home. This was uh, Luther's uh, key verse, life verse, Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Do you have a confidence in your relationship with the Lord that you are in faith and that you have His righteousness? That there's nothing that you can do. Maybe in that when sometimes you might have a tendency to let that relationship with the Lord wane a little bit, maybe grow cold. Maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed. Maybe it's been a long time since you had a quiet time. Maybe, in all honesty, uh, you might even come to this class and you kind of see it as your, your, your weekly uh, fill-up. You know, you're, you come to the filling station. Folks, if we leave here with everything we learn and what a great teacher Mark is and we wait seven days until we can come back and get filled up again, that's not the way to live the Christian life. In fact, you need to be filled with His Spirit when you leave here this afternoon. Or We're not going to stay that long, by the way. When you leave here in this afternoon, you need to be filled with His Holy Spirit. And you need to be living in the righteousness of God. And living with the realization that there's nothing that you can do to please Him more. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself more righteous in His eyes. But because you have that, then live in that righteousness. Let it have an effect 
on you. One thing about these reformers is that they deeply appreciated Luther. In fact, Melanchthon kind of drifted a little bit from this. You know, Luther had this concept of the bondage of the will. And I don't want to get too much into that because I'm, I don't want to get in Mark's area and he might be uh, uh, talking about that. But, but what Luther meant by that, the bondage of the will, is that there was nothing... When, when, when Christ reigns supreme, there's nothing that I can do out of my will to come to God and to please God and to serve God. He takes my will captive. And I cannot not serve Him when my will has been taken captive. It's in bondage to the Lord. Well, Melanchthon, uh, also Erasmus kind of felt this way too. Uh, Melanchthon kind of drifted a little bit. Now, in all of the documents that he produced uh, 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 um, explaining Lutheran theology, he never got away from exactly what Luther held to. But in his heart of hearts, and this is one of the things that caused him a lot of trouble with the, with the Lutherans, the hardcore Lutherans, is that he did not believe in the bondage of the will. He believed in the free will of man. He believed that even after you uh, receive the Holy Spirit, you can walk away from you can rebel against God. So he, he drifted a little bit from Luther uh, in that respect. But the one thing that they had is that they so deeply comprehended and appreciated what God had done in their lives. They were sinners and they'd been saved from damnation by a loving, gracious, merciful God. Luther, of all people, realized that because, man, he was right in the system as a monk trying to do good works, to try to be that good Catholic monk. And finally came to the end of himself saying, no matter what I do, it cannot make me more pleasing to God. He accepts me as I am. But he doesn't leave me there. And then did he ever do a mighty work through Martin Luther and also Melanchthon. But do you have that appreciation? And if you don't, then it's time to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, take me back to the beginning. Take me back to the beginning. Take me back to my first love. That I will live in that righteousness that you have laid on me, that you placed on me. Luke 9, 23 through 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In America, we don't like crosses. We don't like persecution. We don't like pain. We don't like suffering. We live in a world of perpetually striving for perpetual ease and comfort. But that's not a real world. Sooner or later, there will come crisis. Sooner or later, there comes a crossroads. And for these reformers and for Philip Melanchthon, when he was that young man, comes to that place, had no idea when he came to Wittenberg, going to just be a professor how his life would forever change because of this character named Luther and, ha- and how he would form a friendship closer than a brother with this man. And to see him stand in the face of, of, of the church and say, some of what you're doing and what we're doing is not right and I will not back down and I must stand. And then for him to already be identified with him and to accompany him at these different inquisitions 
and to stand for him. Why? Because he understood Luke 9, 23 and 24. For Melanchthon it said, if this is my cross, then I will bear it. And if this is my cross, then I will daily pick it up. And then referring back to his note again, whenever he said, then I will, it will one day, forever be uh, freed from the fury of the theologians. That every day that's what he faced with someone saying, I don't, that is wrong. That is, well, I don't agree with you. But he would stand firm and take his stand. You see right down there the last name, Dr. Radu Gorgita. He is my professor at my last seminar that I took at Midwestern uh, before the end of the year and that I'm actually writing the paper for. He is from Romania. And I was a little bit, I was kind of a little bit nervous going in, thinking, oh man, this, I know this is going to be tough material as it is, and I just hope I understand the man. But oh man, he speaks impeccable English. And he's probably in about his late 40s, uh, did his uh, PhD in Cambridge. But we're in the middle of this, and he's a very unassuming, very, very polite, very courteous man, obviously brilliant. Uh, I mean, he, he would just, just talking, obviously not to try to impress any of the students whatsoever, but I mean, he would just, just drop a name or just say something in a sentence, and you're like, how do you know that? You know, and he would just, just brilliant man. But anyways, before we got too far into it, of course, typical me, you know, I'm going to ask questions, and I'm kind of curious, and I'm not afraid to, can I ask you a question? And I said, Dr. Gorgita, before we go any further, do you mind, can I ask you what your testimony is? I'd like to hear your testimony. Because, see, I ran the numbers and I realized that he obviously was in Romania before the fall of communism. So I was kind of curious. How did he come to know the Lord? And how did he end up being an evangelical? Because the Eastern Orthodox Church is the one that is, is dominant. And that's the dominant faith and religion denomination over in that area. Well, I could see that he didn't really want to draw a lot of attention to himself. He said, yes, I, I would be happy to tell you. And he said... I was probably about 16 or 17. He said, let's see, maybe a little bit younger, 15 or so. I was in my sophomore year in high school. And he said, uh, it was required every year that uh, they would have their class on Marxism. They had to have a class in Marxism every year. And so the time had come around uh, that they were having this class. And the teacher for that class was concerned because the students did not seem to be as passionate about communism. And what he said is, and as a, uh, uh, he said as a side note, he said, you know, it's interesting because he said nobody believed in communism except the party leaders because he said we saw that it was bankrupt, it was useless, uh, had, off, had nothing to offer. All of the people saw this. But the party officials wholeheartedly believed it because they had an interest in it. And he said, and the people who tried to be intellectuals from the West. They would come and they would come to our universities and believe in that. He said, but the thing is, they never lived under it. He said, but it was in that year, he said, I was talking, my, my teacher there, and so she decided that she was going to start an atheist club. And so she had the piece of paper and she comes to the first student and she said, would you... Um, would you like to be in the club? Will be me and he told the time. And the first student said, no, I, I, I don't believe I would like to be in that club. So she marks him off. And then Dr. Gorgita said, he said, I, I, I don't know why she didn't just simply take my answer uh, at face value and then go to the next student. But he said she wouldn't stop with that. She came to me and she said, Radu, do you want to be in the atheist club? And he said, 
No, thank you. I don't believe I do. And then she kept looking at him and she said, Why? You're not a repenter, are you? And see, he was raised in an evangelical home. His grandparents were evangelicals. And so they could meet and they, and they could uh, have services only at certain times. And it was closely watched and monitored and they always had to be very, very careful about what they did. But he said, and this is what he called it, he said, that was my moment of truth in my life. That's when it, it, it went from this is what I've been taught and yes, I think I believe that. And all. He said to where then in that moment, he said, I had to determine where I stood. And he said, on the one hand, I thought to myself, in my mind, I was saying, Radu, all you have to do is to say no, no. Because, see, a repenter was a derogatory term for a real Christian. That's why they called him a repenter. And so it wasn't a flattering term. And so she asked him that. He said, on the one hand, I was saying in my mind, all I have to do is say no, no. And then, as soon as I leave the class, ask for, for, God, for God to forgive me, and he will. He said, but then in my ear I kept hearing the, the words of my Lord. And he said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my heavenly Father. And so he said, I had to make a decision. He said, I said, yes, I am a repenter. His first love was physics. And he had dreams of being a, going on and, and studying physics and then getting his master's and possibly his doctorate and then teaching physics. But you see, in communism at that time, if you were a repenter, they only took those who were totally loyal to communism. So in saying that, he knew that his future career was over. He made that decision as a 16-year-old boy. And, of course, we're in the class, we're just going, you know, we're stunned. And then he said, he said, but you know, he said, I believe that persecution is coming to America. He said, I don't know when. He said, I don't, and I don't really know how. He said, my personal opinion, he says, I think it might be from Islam. But he said, I don't know. He said, but for in my mind, it's no longer a matter of if. It's just simply a matter of when. He said, in Romania, he said, we had it much easier than you have here in America. And, of course, we all just looked at him like, okay, what do you mean by that? He's going crazy. He said, oh, yeah. He said, in Romania, evil was clearly identifiable. But here in America, it comes in many different forms. And he said it's very much like the Apostle Paul says, where the enemy comes as an angel of light. And so he's, and I said, well, and then I asked the question, I said, well, um, oh, oh, no, then he said, I don't know when it happened. He said, I don't know if it'll be three years or four years. He said, the world events and so much has happened even since 9-11. He said, I could see where amazing things could happen in a relatively short period of time. He said, my family and I are planning to, uh, to return to Romania uh, one day uh, to, to teach because my heart is still with the Romanian people. He said, probably about the time the persecution comes is when I will go back to Romania. <laughs> so. <clears throat> but you know what? When I was listening to him and then with this lesson, folks, we've got to constantly come back to saying, you know, am I willing to die for the faith? And I, I don't relish that and I don't look to that. But they were. They were. Melanchthon was. He didn't have to die. He died uh, in his 60s, but he was willing to. Why? 
because he took to heart Luke 9, 23 through 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So you see, just living in America where it's relatively easily, e- easy and uh, uh, we have so many other problems in our lives that we consider to be major crises, the day may come when we will clearly be able to delineate between those that are really crises and then those that you will stake your faith on. And so maybe we could be mindful of that when we leave this place as our points for home say that maybe that God would somehow, some way, because again, we're not under the persecution like they are. We're not facing an enemy the size that they were, but that we might be able to say, oh God, somehow make that a reality in my life to where then I will truly be willing to, to get out of my comfort zone, whatever that might be, at work or in my neighborhood or even with my own family, even possibly with my own spouse, to share with them, to share with people what I will stake my life on. And that is the cross and the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this time together. And Lord, we just thank you for great giants of the faith that have gone before us, that have left such an amazing example. They weren't perfect men, Lord, and they had their flaws. But oh, how they stood. Lord, we pray that you will birth that spirit within us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for making us righteous. We thank you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.